Amen. Amen. What a joy to sing to the Lord, to God, and to the Lamb. What a joy. If you have your copy of God's Word, and I I hope that you do, I trust that you do, uh, take it and turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. I seem to have Google and Logos on my shirt. Do you guys see that? YouTube, Spotify. Uh, As you guys are turning there, Revelation chapter 7, if you were a child growing up in the late 80s and early 90s, you might remember uh, jumping on a trampoline. Uh, Those were just the most amazing creations that I, I would enjoy hours and hours And you might remember, jumping on trampoline, you might remember a game that we used to play called Crack the Egg. Anybody remember Crack the Egg? Basically, you just would lie down in fetal position, grab your legs, uh, and hold on for dear life while your friends, quote-unquote, around you would do their best to get you to crack, to get you to open up. Uh, Usually, the kids would jump around uh, this poor little egg in the middle, And the egg would remain intact because you can't do too much. You try to double bounce them. That was a technical term for our trampoline days. Uh, But usually uh, it wouldn't work. So they would just resort to either jumping physically on you or they would resort, as some of my friends used to do, they'd find ways to to launch you off the trampoline so that while you were holding on with your eyes closed and just trying your best to stay intact, you'd find yourself not landing on a nice trampoline but landing on the ground in various positions, Uh, I I cracked my head open doing that, I dislocated shoulders doing that. Uh, I enjoyed very, very uh, pleasurable experiences of having my friends, who I don't talk to anymore today, uh, launch me off the trampoline. But I, I think in the Christian life, we tend to feel like we are playing a game of crack the egg on a trampoline with the world around us doing everything that they can to get us to crack. Right? Anything that they can to get us to say, that's it, I'm done, it's over, I give up. I don't know about you, do you ever feel like you're not going to make it? As a Christian, do you ever feel like, I don't think I'm going to make it to the end? We know things are just going to keep getting worse. We know that they get worse. And then in Daniel's 70th week, at the end of time, they get even worse. And so the question that was posed to us last week from Revelation chapter 6 is, who can stand Who can stand under such ferocious judgment? Who can stand the persecution around the world? And then who can stand the wrath of God being poured out? Well, Revelation chapter 7 answers that question. That's why Revelation 7 is in the Bible. Revelation 7 is in the Bible to answer that question that was asked. Who can stand? And the answer is God's people can stand. God's people can stand. We're going to see two visions, one on earth, one in heaven, displaying for us two groups of people that can make it to the end, that can stand. And along with them, I believe you and I can stand if we are made able to stand by Jesus Christ himself. So let's read Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, and then we will dive in together. Revelation chapter 7, John writes, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. 
And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the slaves of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Father, we come before you and we ask that you would teach us this morning. Speak to us through your word in a way where we would be profoundly affected. Don't let us leave here remaining unaffected. God, I pray that your precious and profound promises that are found in this section of scripture would, would address our fears, our worries, our anxieties, our concerns, our our despair, our questions, our struggles, encourage our hearts. Holy Spirit, as we pray every Sunday, open our eyes that we'd behold wonderful things from your law. Without you doing the work, we won't be able to see what we're supposed to see. So we give ourselves wholly to you, dependent upon you. We need you to work. We renounce any form of self-reliance as if we are smart enough to understand these things, as if we are competent enough to understand these things on our own. And we give ourselves wholly to the work of the Spirit this morning. Create in us fresh affections for Jesus. Create in us fresh desires for Him. Encourage our hearts this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So chapter 6 ended with the question in verse 17, the great day of the wrath has come, the wrath of the Lamb has come. And who is able to stand? Who can stand as God's wrath is being poured out? Who can stand as judgment is being poured out? We went to Nahum chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. Who can stand before God's indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. So who can stand is really a rhetorical question. No one can stand under the wrath of God, but God takes that rhetorical question and he answers it with, yes, there are people who can stand, namely those who belong to me. The people of God secured on the earth and those secured in heaven that we'll look at in a few weeks after Easter are made able to stand by God and by his power. So we're going to look at the first group, the first vision that we see in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 7, really, we're going to see three different aspects of this section of Scripture. Number one, let's look at the restraint of God's wrath. The restraint of God's wrath. This is verse 1 of chapter 7. God's wrath is restrained. Now, again, as we're reading through chronologically, there are some Christians that really struggle to see what's the point of chapter 7, where does it fit. I think it fits in the flow perfectly. Who is able to stand? Here's the answer to that question. Following the six seals, it's evident that no one can survive what's happening. Things are so drastically bad, and they're getting worse. Remember the progression? 
The sealed judgments have been getting worse and worse. Remember, there was famine, but the, the Lord said, don't touch the oil and the wine. The fourth of the earth dies, but three-fourths of the earth is left alive. So they are bad, but just wait until the trumpets and the bowls. It gets progressively worse and worse and horrific. But in seal number six, it's obvious this destruction and devastation is so powerful that even non-believers are saying, we know this is from God and nobody's going to survive this. Who can stand? Who can survive this? So the world is falling apart all around the people that are there at that time. And it's falling apart, I remind you, by God's hand, right? God's the one doing these things. Those who are protected by God's hand are not only not falling apart, but they're actually going to bring hope to those around them. They're actually going to bring together the redeemed before the Lord. Notice the status of believers is always going to be different than non-believers. Non-believers say, who can stand? And the status of believers is, we can, by God's power. Those who dwell on the earth are terrified. Those who are gods and belong to him, they're filled with hope. They're filled with joy. That's why we sing, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. As things are getting worse, God's seal comes in to protect 144,000 people on the earth, to make them able to stand. Notice it comes in after six seals have already happened. Uh, we like to say a lot that God God's timing is perfect, right? He's never late. Amen and amen. He's never late. But I think this reminds us that he's hardly ever early, right? He's waited six seals to bring about this protection of his people. So let's see the restraint of God's wrath in verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. That's not a flat earth theory. That is four points of the compass all around the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. Four winds are often associated with judgment in the Old Testament. Again, I remind you, if we know our Old Testament, Revelation makes complete sense to us. Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 36, God says, I will bring upon Elam the four winds, which are my fierce anger and calamity. So this description is there. When a Jewish person would hear Revelation 7 being read, they know exactly what's happening. This is God's fierce anger and judgment. Daniel chapter 7, verse 2, four winds are stirring up the great sea to bring about judgment. Hosea chapter 13, verse 15, a great east wind will come and plunder all of Israel's possessions in judgment. So they're holding back this judgment. They're not letting it go. The next phase of God's wrath is restrained for a moment. The earth is spinning, and yet they're holding back the wind so that they won't blow with a, fer a ferocious judgment. Imagine standing here. It says they're holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. I don't know if you've woken up early enough in the morning where you kind of walk out and it's just an eerie stillness. And then just a leaf just kind of does this and you go, okay, there's a breeze. Imagine no breeze. And imagine that, especially after seal number six, right? Just all of this massive cosmic disturbances of meteors falling and all this crazy chaos going on. And then all of a sudden, everything stops. Not even a wind, not even a breeze. The trees don't even move. Why? Because God's wrath is being held onto. Wait, don't let this next phase happen until something happens first. Number two, 
the reason for the restraint. So number one, we see the restraint of God's wrath. Number two, the reason for the restraint. The reason for the restraint is found in verses two through three, and it's explicit. I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bond servants or slaves of our God on their forehead. What's happening here? Well, verse 2, we find another angel. That word another in Greek is another of the same kind. Some people think that this is Jesus doing this. It's not Jesus. It's another angel. It's another of the same kind. And this angel rises with the sun. We don't really know exactly what that terminology means. Maybe he's rising from the east and going west with the sun. Maybe he's just saying at the dawn of this new day, after that sixth seal has been opened, he's doing this. We don't really know. The good thing is not knowing. It's not germane to the interpretation of what's happening and the application of what's happening, so it's okay. He has this seal, and he's going to press this seal onto the forehead of the servants of God. He proclaims with a loud voice, a loud voice, listen to me, you four angels, don't do what you're about to do. Notice it says that they were granted, verse 2, to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. Again, this is no surprise to us. They are holding back the judgment of God, but God himself gave them authority to do this. Just like God himself gave authority, remember that language is exactly the same language used in seal 1, 2, 3, 4. It was granted authority to do something. God is the one behind all of this judgment, giving human agents or angelic agents the ability to carry out his judgment. It was granted to harm the earth and the sea. We're going to see that in chapter 8. And he says, don't harm it. Don't let those judgments happen until we have sealed the slaves of our God on their foreheads until we've sealed. What's a seal? A seal is a mark of ownership. God's seal is God's power and authority over a thing that belongs to God. And we actually know what this seal says. If you turn to chapter 14, verse 1, we know what this seal says. Verse 1, I looked and behold, this is chapter 14, verse 1, the lamb was standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. So this seal has the name of Christ and the name of the Father on the forehead. On the forehead. What does that mean? Again, some of these words are difficult if we take it literally. It's just a mark that's put on their forehead. We could take it symbolically. Uh, Again, I don't think it, it changes the application of what's happening at all. I would try to see it more literally than symbolically. Because back in that day, soldiers or guild members would have a mark to distinguish themselves unto a specific task. So it's conspicuous. It's on your forehead. There's a mark that distinguishes you from everybody else. It's obvious who you belong to, who you serve. Across their minds, everything that they think is filtered through the ownership of belonging to somebody else. And so this angel has that seal, that stamp. And he can go around through all the world and stamp anybody that he wants to because they will belong to God. By the way, again, Old Testament language, Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. We don't have time to look at it, but just mark it down in your notes. Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. God tells 
the Israelites to do the exact same thing. He says that there are people, before you go to war, I'm going to seal people in that city who are mourning over their sin so that you would not kill them. So again, this idea of being sealed for God's purposes is not unique to Revelation. It's all over the Old Testament. We're going to look at some of those passages today. They're set apart unto God. I mean, you, you could see this even in the Passover, right? The, the Passover, if you, if you put the lamb's blood over the doorposts of your house, you have ha- sealed your house to God. This house belongs to God. Think of Rahab in, in Jericho, that scarlet cord that goes out her window, sealing her off. She will be protected. Her and her family will be protected. So that's what this is. There's a protection here. There's a protection. By the way, this sealing doesn't save them. Notice how it says that in verse 3. Don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the slaves of our God. So they're already saved. This sealing protects those who are already saved. It protects those. What does it protect them from? Well, go to chapter 9, verse 4. Out of the smoke, this is verse 3 of chapter 9. Out of the smoke of this pit comes locusts upon the earth. And power was given to them, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And they were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. So this isn't sealing them for salvation. They're already saved. This is sealing them from protection against God's wrath. This is sealing them from protection against demonic forces, against God's allowance of judgment to happen. Notice it doesn't protect them from God's enemies they're probably going to die. Some of them are going to die. We're going to see towards the end of this that some of them will end up being beheaded. But it protects them from God's judgment, from God's wrath. Just like, remember, with the Egyptians, where God would send a plague on the Egyptians, and yet it would not strike those who were in Goshen, right? It would not strike the Israelites. That's what God's doing here. He's pouring out judgment. He knows exactly where every meteor is going to go. He knows exactly where every locust is going to go. He knows exactly where they're going to go. And he says, you're allowed to judge those who dwell on the earth. You're not allowed to touch my people. You're not allowed to touch them. We need not fear the wrath of God. We need not fear the wrath of God. God would say the exact same thing to us today. You're not destined for wrath. We we can go ahead and realize, we don't have to be afraid of it, but we can go ahead and realize man is going to judge us. They're going to be angry at us. They are going to persecute us. If they persecuted our master, they're going to persecute us too. But we don't have to fear the wrath of God. Fear the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. We don't have to fear God anymore. Because God sets apart his own people, those who belong to him. By the way, the devil tries to do this with his own quote-unquote people. right? God says, I'm going to seal my people. And the devil says, I'm going to seal my people. What do we call that in Revelation? It's the mark of the beast, right? I'm going to seal off my people on their foreheads, on their right hand. I'm going to seal off my people. It's a contrast. We're going to see a lot of different contrasts with what God is doing with his people and what the devil's going to do with those who are the earth dwellers. These people are uniquely Jewish, and so they're sought out by the beast. I believe in uh, Daniel's 70th week, if you go back to Daniel 9, which we're going to look at next week, if you go back to Daniel 9, you see that God says, uh, Daniel, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people, for Israel. 
Uh, 69 of them have already happened, and we're awaiting one last period of seven years. That's a time of the Jews. It's a time of salvation being brought to the Jews. Right now, we're in a time of the Gentiles, right? This is the church age. Salvation is being brought to the Gentiles. But once that time is over, which I believe will happen during the rapture, I believe that we are removed, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Holy Spirit, that restraining influence in the church is removed. The presence of the, the grace of God through the church is removed. And the clock begins, and seven years happen, and that's all about Jewish redemption. So these are, these are Jews, and being Jewish, they're uniquely sought out by the beast. In fact, let's just turn to chapter 13, verse 16. Chapter 13, verse 16. Starting in verse 15, it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So we're going to talk about the false prophet, the antichrist, and the devil who is um, orchestrating all of these things. And he causes the small and the great, verse 16, and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. He provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here's wisdom, let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, his number is 666. And he's constantly trying to, the Antichrist and the false prophet are constantly trying to get anyone who is alive during that period of time to worship the devil, to worship a false religious system. But God sets apart his people. We already looked at chapter 14, verse 1. If you go down to verse 3, the 144,000 sing a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased, redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women. So as the Antichrist is trying to say, be involved in the worldliness, be involved in the worldly system, be involved in the debauchery and the immorality, they say no. They say no. They have kept themselves chaste or pure. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They've been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. By the way, that is an important phrase, first fruits. First fruits is just if you, if you plant a, a seed in the ground and, and the seed turns into a tree, let's say it's an apple tree, and you're watering it, you're seeing it grow, you're watering it, you're seeing it grow, and you're wondering, is fruit ever going to come from this tree? When you see one fruit come off of a branch... That's called the first fruit. And if you see one, you know that others are going to follow. Maybe right after, maybe a few months after, maybe a few years after. But the Jewish concept of fruit, first fruits is you're waiting to see, are there going to be more after? And so first fruits, once that apple pops on the tree, you know this tree is bearing fruit. And there's going to be more that follow. So here, when God says the 144,000 Jewish people, they are the first fruits, that means there's other Jews that are going to follow them to salvation. There's other Jews that are going to be following behind to salvation. And verse 5, no lie was found in their mouth. They're blameless. They are kept apart from sin, above reproach to the Lord. So we have the restraining of God's wrath done by these four angels. We have the recipients, or we have the, the reason for the restraint, which is so clear. Don't let any of that judgment happen until people are sealed. My people who belong to me are sealed. But then finally, number three, let's look at the recipients of the seal. Who receives this seal? Who receives this seal? Back in chapter 7, 
verses 4 through 8. There is a lot in this list that should stand out to you. I love this list. I love this list. I wish... I wish I could just preach an entire sermon on this list. We don't have enough time. We're halfway through. But I wish we could just spend all of our time on this list. This list is massively important. Who, who makes up the 144,000? Let me give you a couple answers that I, I don't think are correct. Uh, one that I, I, I know for sure is not correct. And I want you to know it. Because I think that you either have heard it before or you're going to hear it as you share the gospel and at least as you open your door to somebody who's knocking on it. You talk to a Jehovah's Witness. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that the 144,000 here in chapter 7 are Jehovah's Witnesses and the best of the Jehovah's Witnesses that are in, because remember Jehovah's Witnesses, they only believe in three possible eternal destinies. They believe in uh, new heavens, new earth, and annihilation. They, they don't believe in uh, eternal conscious torment. They believe in soul sleep, right? We believe the Bible is very clear. There's only two possible destinies, heaven or hell, forever. That's it. They believe in three. So there's the new heavens and new earth, which that's biblical language, but that's just one ultimate final eternal destination. And then they believe in soul sleep. What differentiates the new heavens and the new earth to a Jehovah's Witness? Well, if you ask them, and I, I, I have asked many, they will tell you that the new heavens is where only 144,000 perfect Jehovah's Witnesses go. And that that's where Jesus lives. So I ask them, do you plan on going there? And they will say, no, not at all. Because I'm not a perfect Jehovah's Witness. I would like to be there, but most Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you that the number has already been sealed in heaven. There's already the 144,000, because this has been around for... Uh, several decades, so there, heaven's already been filled with 144,000 perfect Jehovah's Witnesses. There are over 6 million Jehovah's Witnesses in the world today. So if you ask them, do you think you're going to be a part of that group, most will say no. So then you ask them, well, what is your hope in the afterlife? And they would say, the new earth. And I would ask them, where am I going to go? And they say, you seem to be a decent person. And I say, you don't know me well enough. But they say, you seem to be a good person. Uh, you're going to be with us on the new earth. And I said, do I have to convert to Je Jehovah's Witness? They say, no. So we're going to both be in the same place. I don't have to do anything. They say, yes. I say, great, we're done. Like, it, it just, uh, there's no hope. And when they say, uh, I ask them what differentiates the, the new heavens from the new earth, and they will tell you, Jesus lives in the new heavens. And I say, cool, did you come to the new earth? You get to go to the new heavens. And they say, no, there's an expanse between those, and there's a seal that happens where if you're in the new earth, you cannot go to the new heavens, and if you're in the new heavens, you don't want to go to the new earth. And so there's this seal between those two places. And so I said, so you're telling me that you want to go to a place for all of eternity where Jesus will not be. You don't get to worship him at his feet. You know that he saved you, but you don't get to be with him. And they say, yeah, that's our hope. I say, that sounds like hell, right? Hell is a place where you know Jesus was your savior, but you rejected him, and you don't ever get to be with him for all of eternity. So 144,000, it's not 144,000 perfect Jehovah's Witnesses. And I want you to know that because they will tell you that, and you need to be able to have gracious, reasonable, rational responses to be able to articulate the glory of God in the gospel. Secondly, there is a, a different view uh, that would say that this is the church. Now, this one, 
though I don't agree with, this one is held by many, many dear brothers and sisters. I mean, my, my uncles in law uh, believe that this represents the church. They love Jesus. I love them. Uh, Jeff, Brian, and David, if you're watching this, I love you guys. We, we know we don't agree on this. That's okay. But this is not an issue of salvific theology, right? This isn't gospel to say that this is the church. I know their argument. Uh, I, I would disagree with it, but we still fellowship together. We still love the gospel because this isn't gospel. Um, so you'll hear that too. I just want you to know. And, and down the road, we'll talk about some systems that would lead you to believe that which I know where their starting point is that gets them to believe that. Um, but again, brothers and sisters in the world, people that love Jesus more than all of us would, they would see this as being the church. So, so don't just throw that away and discredit that if you have somebody in your life that would see these 144,000 being a representation of the church. So wh what is it? I, I think my view, uh, held by many others, is that these are people exactly as they're described. It's 144,000 Jewish people, 12,000 from each tribe. Now, some people will say, how is that possible since uh, even Jews today are struggling to figure out what tribe they were a part of? I would say maybe they don't know, but God does, right? God knows what, which Jew is a part of whatever tribe they're a part of. Secondly, it's only them who are sealed, but it's not only them who are saved from the Jews. Remember, we looked at the first groups. Um, so, these are Jewish people that are being sealed by God, part of the 12 tribes of Israel. So the first question that I ask myself about the recipients of the seal is who are they? And I would say that they are Jewish people. Second question that I have is what's up with this list? What's up with this list? Remember the 12 tribes of Israel back in the day, right? This list doesn't match that list. By the way, throughout the Bible, there are 19 different listings of the 12 tribes of Israel. 19 different listings. One thing's always consistent, there's 12, but there's 19 different listings. This is the 20th. It doesn't even match any of the 19. Some people say that's a huge problem for people who believe the Bible. I actually think it helps our understanding of belief in the Bible. Lists sometimes follow the birth order. Sometimes it's the order of Jacob blessing them in Genesis 49. It's a different order from the sons being born to their blessing being given. Sometimes the order is of the encampment around Cana. Sometimes the order is of the census before the invasion of Cana. Sometimes the order of blessing, it's the order of blessings and cursings given. Sometimes it's the order of Moses blessing, the order of inheritance, the order of the gates, the order of the territories. There's so many different orders given. So I don't think that there's any reason to doubt the veracity of scripture when we come to a different list. I mean, just even think about our nation, our country. We've only been around for 250 years, and we have significant differences in the way that territories have happened, the way that states have grown. If you were to ask somebody back in the 1800s, what does the United States of America look, look like? That's a very different answer than what we would see it as being today. We've had at least in the Bible... 400 years transpired between the last giving of the 12 tribes of Israel to this giving. So 400 years. If we've only been around for 250 years as a, as a country and we've had changes in our territories and our states, then for sure they're going to have changes. So what's different? What's different about this list? Uh, start from the beginning. Who is the firstborn? Who is the firstborn to Jacob? It's Reuben. 
But who's the first person mentioned in this list? Judah. Why is that? Well, I think that's a theological point. It was promised that the Messiah would come from Judah in Genesis. And here in Revelation, the Messiah has come. So this is the first tribe mentioned. The lion from the tribe of Judah. Also, Levi's on this list. Levi in verse 7, he's on the list. Which is strange because he's never on any list. The reason why he's not is because, remember, Levi didn't get a territory, right? Uh, After the blessing was given, after the first list of Jacob's 12 sons and the blessings given to them, you never see Levi on a list ever again because he wasn't given a territory in Israel, right? The Levites, the, the priests back in that day, they're supposed to go around and live in a territory and minister to a territory and, and be uh, financially enabled by that territory to live in that territory. But they never had any territory to call their own. But now that the Levitical system of priesthood is gone and you and I are prophets and priests unto God, we don't need the Levites to have their uh, territory, to have their uh, movement throughout all the other territories. We don't need that anymore. Every believer is a priest unto God, so their role as a tribe has changed, so they're put into the list, which my question then is, who got booted from the list? If they get added to the list, who gets booted? Uh, His name is Dan. Dan gets booted. Why? Well, we don't know, but if there is a winner in the race of worst idolatry in the Old Testament of the 12 tribes of Israel, he wins. By the way, it's a very close race, right? I mean, all of these tribes are doing a really bad job in worshiping Yahweh. So Dan's removed. He is the foremost of all of the idolatrous tribes in Israel. Ephraim's also removed. Ephraim's not there. Uh, Ephraim is normally on the list. He's the largest of all of the tribes. But he's replaced with the tribe of Joseph, which makes sense because that's his dad. So Joseph's son is Ephraim. So you're kind of bringing in Ephraim by mentioning Joseph as a tribe but without mentioning Ephraim. And the reason why is they are the most pugnacious tribe of all of the tribes. Uh, they are the ones in Judges chapter 12. You remember the whole Shibboleth test? Say it correctly or we kill you. Uh, that's them. They're like, we love our territory. You don't get to come into our territory and we're going to kill you. And they're the, the first civil war in Israel happens because of Ephraim. So they're kicked out. This list tells us massive theological realities of who Israel was and who they're meant to be. So what do we do with this list? There are 144,000 Jewish people who are designated by God for his protection, who can stand the wrath of God, only those who are sealed, protected by him. What are we supposed to do with this list? Well, I think to answer that question, I need to ask another question. What is the theme of the Bible? What's the theme of all of Scripture? There's a lot of answers given to that, right? Garden to garden, that's one theme. Paradise given, paradise lost, paradise regained. The unfolding of salvation. The story of Jesus promised, prophesied, given, reigning. Promises made, promises kept. There's so many different ways that we could thematically look at the Bible. But what about just by volume of uh, who the Bible's about? Who is mentioned most often in the Bible? And the answer to that is clearly Israel. Clearly Israel. Most people look at the Bible and they look at Genesis 1 through 11 and then they just skip ahead to Jesus. There's a whole massive amount of ink that has been given about Israel. 
So let's go on a tiny little tour. We don't have time to do a big one. So let's do a tiny little tour. Go back to Genesis, all the way back to Genesis, chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, all the way down, I mean, really through the chapter. But in verses 1 through 3, the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you or through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the very first promise that's given by God to the nation Israel. You fast forward to chapter 15, the covenant is restated, the territories are defined. If you fast forward to chapter, uh, that's chapter 15, if you fast forward to chapter 18, God makes a unilateral covenant with Abraham, and a massive amount of land is given to Abraham. Go back, uh, go over to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1 is the very first time that Abraham's descendants are called Israel. Uh, now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. These are the names of the sons of Israel. Jacob was renamed Israel. So these, this is the list of Israelites. First time that we see that in the Bible. Uh, chapter 19 of Exodus describes the Israelites as a treasured possession, a chosen people by God. Go to Leviticus. Something's going to happen in Leviticus chapter 26, Leviticus chapter 26. And this really will set the pattern. Again, if we had more time, we could go through it, but this will set the pattern for the entirety of the rest of the Old Testament leading to the New Testament. God says, I have a people group that I want to save, that I want to make my own, and I want in saving them, them to be the greatest missionaries in the whole world. But if they choose to rebel against me, they will receive consequences, but they will never cease being my people. They will never cease being my people, not in a saved sense, but in a covenantal sense. I made a covenant to you, and they'll never cease being my people. So the first time you really begin to see this is Leviticus chapter 26, starting in verse 43. The land, well, verse 2, I'll remember, uh, verse 42, I'll remember my covenant with Jacob. I will also remember my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham as well. I'll remember the land. For the land will be abandoned by them and will make up for its Sabbaths while it's made desolate without them. They're going to be gone. Then, meanwhile, they, meanwhile, will be making amends for their iniquity. So why are they gone? They're going to be gone for about 100 years. They are exiled out of the land because of their disobedience. They'll be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet, in spite of this, in spite of their disobedience and in spite of being exiled and losing their land, yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them. Nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, because I am the Lord their God. I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. So we begin to see a very clear pattern that is stated over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Israel, you... A covenant has been made with you by God, and you are his people. Act like it. Serve him. Follow him. But constantly they rebel. Constantly they disobey. They're exiled. They're judged. They're punished. There are consequences that happen. Constantly they're removed. But through it all, God never says, that's it. I'm done. You're no longer my people. In fact, through it all, 
God says through his people and through his prophets, you're going to be exiled. You're going to lose the land now, but I will still remember my covenant with Israel down the road. Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses is about to die, and this is his last speech. We're going to be exiled. You guys are going to be exiled. You're going to experience all the curses in this book, but then God will bring you back. You'll repent. You'll be saved. You'll experience blessing. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 17. Therefore say, uh, say, Uh, This is a prophecy from Ezekiel. Thus saith the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I'll give you the land of Israel. You've been exiled, but I'm going to bring you back and give you the land that I promised you. Ezekiel chapter 36 through, uh, or 34 through 36, says that God's going to give them shepherds in that last day to help them, to guide them, to bring them back to him. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 35 says that he's going to save the nation surrounding them, which we see is going to happen. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 37, you remember the dry bones where uh, they're dead, Israel's dead, but God's going to raise them up and give them life again. And then Ezekiel chapter 36 is this crazy uh, prophecy to mountains. I love it. Ezekiel does a bunch of crazy stuff, but this is one of them where God says, hey, just go yell at the mountains. And so he goes yelling at the mountains of Israel. And he just says, hey, mountains, you're going to ultimately have a people group that's going to own your land. You're going to be owned by God's chosen people who are going to experience peace and blessing forever. Um, Ezekiel chapter 36 talks about this. So, you know, some people will say, well, the prophecies given to Israel in Ezekiel can't be literally fulfilled by them because those people are dead and it didn't happen. And I would say, well, the mountains are still there. I've I've stood on them. They're still there. And they're going to be there as God fulfills his promise. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 14 says the same thing. Jeremiah chapter uh, 30 says the same thing. I'll bring you back. I'm going to punish those who exile you, and I'll give you peace in the land. Zechariah 12, I'll gather all of Israel together, and they will all be saved. Uh, this is all the minor prophets are about, minus Jonah. All the minor prophets, you know, Amos talks about it. God's given a, a, a promise to Israel that he will uh, complete. He will fulfill. He knows those who are his. And by the way, all these promises are given to unbelieving Israel, right, at the time. God's not giving this to Uh, believing Israel who say, we believe that you're Messiah, and God says, great, you get the land. God's telling unbelieving Israel, you are going to be exiled, but you're going to have somebody down the road who's going to get the land. And then Jesus shows up in the New Testament. This is why they're so confused in the New Testament. Here's Messiah. Messiah's supposed to give us a land. Messiah's supposed to protect us, save us politically, and give us the kingdom that we've been waiting for. And Jesus says, actually, just because you're a Jew does not mean that you are automatically saved and in the kingdom. You need to repent. And I've come not to give you political freedom, but to give you freedom from the greatest oppressor ever, which is Satan himself and the enemy of sin and death and hell. So he dies. Everyone's confused. He rises from the dead. And then he leaves. What about the promises? What about the promises given about a land that Israel's going to inhabit, about the Davidic throne that's going to be uh, owned and operated by Jesus the Messiah? What about the promises? Some would say, again, Uh, that the church has replaced Israel, that in the New Testament the church replaces Israel. They like to use an example, an illustration to say, like, you you tell your kid that you're going to give them a bike for their birthday, and then instead you give them a BMW, right? God said, I'm going to give you Israel, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to give you a throne, I'm going to give you an earthly kingdom, and then he says, you know what, not that, we're replacing you with with the church, and I'm going to give you eternal salvation, eternal life. It's an okay illustration. It's just a little bit faulty because the real illustration would be like telling your kid that you're going to give them a bike and then giving the neighbor's kid a BMW, right? Because God made a promise to Israel. God made a promise to Israel. Turn one other place. Jeremiah chapter 31. 
Jeremiah chapter 31. This is after the new covenant is established, where God says, I'm going to give a new covenant to you, which we're going to talk about at the Passover Seder. I'm going to give you a new covenant. You don't love me now, but you're going to love me then. I'm going to bring you back to the land. I'm going to give you peace. I'm going to give you salvation. You're going to love me. I'm going to write my laws on your heart. I'm going to give you a new heart. And then it says this in verse 35. Thus says the Lord. This is Jeremiah 31, 35. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the seas so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs before me, so if the sun stops shining, if the moon dies, if the stars fall from the sky, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all of the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. What is he saying? There's never a time when those things are going to happen. So there's never a time when God's promise to his chosen people, Israel, will ever be broken. That's why, go to Romans chapter 11. That's why Paul asks this very question. The Jews have rejected their Messiah. Does that mean God has rejected them forever? Romans chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. God's not rejected his people. Then he goes on to talk about the the fact that God has allowed the hardening of their hearts to happen so that the Gentiles can receive the gospel. You and I receive the gospel because Israel has defied their Messiah. But once the time of the Gentiles is over, if you drop down in chapter 11, verse verse 25, I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened. Partial, right? There are some... Jews that are being saved today believe in Jesus as the Messiah. So there's a partial hardening. Not every Jew doesn't believe. A partial hardening uh, hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The gospel is going to the nations. And then when the fullness of the time of the Gentiles has happened, then, verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. They will be saved. God's going to do it. The question is how? And so put yourself in John's sandals in Revelation chapter 7. He sees the earth looks like it's being destroyed. It looks like everything, I mean, play the credits, roll up the scroll, the movie's over, history's done. And John asks in his heart that question, God, what about your promises? What about your promises to Israel? He's watching the earth literally be destroyed. And an obvious question would be, God, what happened to your promises? I guess they haven't been fulfilled. Your promises go unfulfilled. And the answer in chapter 7 is a resounding no. They haven't gone unfulfilled. I'm saving them now. For a period of seven years, in Daniel's 70th week, all of Israel is going to be saved. Not every single specific Jew, because there are going to be some that harden their hearts against God. But the majority, ethnic Israel as a whole, will receive Jesus as their Messiah. Zechariah 12 through 13 says this. That's why the seals are interrupted. Because if they weren't interrupted then God's promises wouldn't be fulfilled. Israel would stop, they would not believe, they would keep on hardening their hearts, but they're they're saved, they're sealed, they're set apart unto God. So we've seen the restraint of God's wrath, we see the reason for the restraint, and finally, number three, we see 
the recipients of the seal. So, so what? Let me just give you three really quick in two minutes, and then we'll close with our benediction this morning. Three conclusions and implications for our lives today. Number one, God's promises will not fail. God's promises will not fail. God made a promise to Israel. Revelation chapter 7 is an answering and a fulfillment of that promise. God's promises will never fail. He made a promise to Israel, and it's going to come to pass. So my question to you this morning is, what promise has he made to you? Let me give you a couple. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to what? Complete it. That's a promise. Jude chapter 24, he will keep you from stumbling and make you to stand in his presence with great joy. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, God will never leave you or forsake you. John 14, he's prepared a place for you, and he's going to come and get you and take you to be home with him. John chapter 10, verse 28, no one can snatch you out of God's hand. John chapter 8, or Romans chapter 8, verse 28, God causes all things to work together for your good. Romans 8, 38 through 39, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you. So who can stand? Revelation chapter 7 says the people of God can stand. And if they can stand in Revelation chapter 7, you and I can stand today. Not because of us, but because of God. If God protects no one, then no one stands. No one's going to survive. But if God protects a specific group of people, then no one can take them away. No one can take them away. Secondly, God seals those who are his. God seals those who are his. Number one, God absolutely will keep every single promise he's made. And then number two, in application, God seals his people. If you're a Christian, you're in view in chapter 7. Not directly, because this is Jewish people being sealed at the end times, but indirectly because you and I have a seal that's been given to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. God has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. John chapter 6, verse 27. Don't work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, the Father, God has set his seal, and now we are in him, and we receive the seal of Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14 says that the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a seal of our redemption. We are God's own possession. And then Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You've been sealed. I, I know it's not a mark on your forehead, but it's a mark in your heart. Your heart has changed. Can people see that? Just like Revelation 7, people are going to see the mark that's on these people's foreheads. Can people see the mark that's in your heart? Can they tell that you've been sealed by God? Whose mark do you have? Do you have God's mark through the Holy Spirit, or do you have the devil's mark through your flesh? And also, whose wrath do you want? Because if you have God's seal, you're going to get the wrath of the devil. But we can handle that. If you have the flesh's seal on your heart, you're going to get the wrath of God. If you're a Christian this morning, why are you a Christian? How are you a Christian? How are you going to be that egg that doesn't crack? It's because God has sealed you. A Christian is a person who, because of God, will forever belong to God. And finally, number three, God loves saving people. 
God loves saving people. This is a conclusion that we get through the whole Bible. So conclusion for Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. Number one, God will not fail in keeping his promises. Number two, God seals those who belong to him. And number three, and finally, God loves saving people. In every place of awful judgment in the Bible, we see salvation. God destroys the whole earth with a flood, and he saves a specific people group. He saves Noah and his family members. We already talked about Rahab. God saves Rahab and Jericho. We already talked about Egypt receiving the ten plagues, and God spares and saves his own people. God loves saving people. That's what he's about. And brothers and sisters, let's end here in Acts chapter 18. God has people in this city that he desires to save. Acts chapter 18, verses 9 through 10. The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and don't be silent because I'm with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you because I have many people in this city. I just look around at Northridge. I look around at Los Angeles. I look around at California. So many people are leaving California because it's so awful. It's so bad. It's, it's just getting worse and people just want to leave. And I understand that. But brothers and sisters, there is a remnant here. There are people here that God has placed his seal on. They just don't even know it yet. They're his elect, but they don't even know it. And they're going to hear about it from you, from your lips. The church needs to be here because God has people in this city that need to hear that they can stand. We are protected from the wrath of God because Jesus wasn't. He received the full wrath of God so that we, with a seal on our hearts, could stand in his presence, blameless and with great joy. Let's pray together and then we will stand for our benediction this morning. Father, we thank you for your amazing word. Thank you so much for your grace and your kindness and giving us a picture of your trustworthiness. You promised you were going to save your people and you did. You saved them. You were going to save them in the end times and then you're going to give them the kingdom that you promised in the millennial kingdom. You are going to give them every single promise and you're going to do the same for us. Every promise you've made is a yes and amen in Christ. So God, help us to trust you, our faithful God. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Let's stand together as we read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 through 24 as our benediction this morning. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our lord jesus christ you say that's impossible well faithful is he who calls you and he will bring it to pass amen and amen let's rest in that this morning this lord's day and throughout this week we will see you on wednesday for our